If you're a man or a woman or a family member of one who has served in our military, would you stand just for a moment so we can acknowledge and thank you this Memorial Weekend? As Memorial Day reminds us, war is costly. And yet there are times that you have to fight for what's right. And the same is true when it comes to the church or Christianity. As believers, we're told to preserve unity, and yet Jude chapter 3 tells us to contend earnestly for the faith. The key is for us to be able to discern when we're fighting about something that is simply a matter of our personal preference versus something that is foundational to the faith. As we turn in our Bibles today to Acts chapter 15, what we're going to see is there was a fight in the early church, and it was a fight over something that was at the very foundation of the faith, because there were some who were trying to add works to the gospel of grace. So we look at Acts 15, 1 through 5, we read, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others in the church should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, uh, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to the brethren. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were uh, received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, if you were here when we looked at chapter 14 in the book of Acts, you'll recall that Paul and Barnabas have returned from a two-year missionary journey. They were up in the area of Galatia and all throughout Cyprus and the region, and they had returned and they were reporting how many of the Jews were coming to faith in Christ. And Acts 14, 27 said, and they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, those in Antioch were excited. And we saw that as they traveled the 300 miles from Antioch to Jerusalem, that there were those in the cities along the way that also received the news with joy. But not everybody was rejoicing and ready to receive these Gentile Christians into the church. Those that were against this are called the sect of the Pharisees. Now, there were religious leaders in the first century. There were Jews, I mean, of the Jewish leadership, there were scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and the the, the sect of the Pharisees were the traditionalists. These were the ones who said there are, there are rules and rituals. There's the law and there are things that happen in the temple. Many of those, uh, there were Pharisees who were priests that had served in the temple and they were coming to faith. And now as they watch these Gentiles coming into the church, they said, you know, there are things that have to be done. And this wasn't just personal preferences where they were saying, well, this is how we'd like church to look. They were saying, without these things, you're not saved. And what they were requiring was something that had never been required by God. Uh, as you look all the way back into the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis 15, 6, it tells us, Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham was the father of the Jewish line. He was the patriarch that God called and, and brought about the Jewish nation from the line of Abraham. 
And you see that it says he believed, he had faith in the Lord, and that's what saved him. Paul will later write about Abraham in Romans 4.11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. It says very plainly, uh, Abraham was said to be saved before he ever was circumcised. And yet we find here there are those who are coming in and saying you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, what the Bible says is we have a circumcision of the heart. It is, it is not an external physical sign uh, that, that men are able to take on. For both men and women, boys and girls, when we come to faith in Christ, we're told our hearts, our hearts are circumcised. What, what we're saved by is our, our faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's not based upon any external thing that we're doing. You see, all of us here have done lots of things in our life, and, and they ultimately boil down to the fact that we're sinners. How many of us here would say that we have lived a perfect life? 100% of the time, we have never lied, cheated, stolen. We've never done anything wrong ever in our life. Can anybody say that? Uh, please don't raise your hands because if you are going to, I want you to read Romans 3.10. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 goes on to tell us, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that standard of perfection, being perfect 100% of the time. See, the word sin just means that we have uh, missed the mark is literally what it means. We have fallen short of 100 out of 100 arrows hitting the bullseye of a target. That means we're a sinner. It doesn't matter if 99 get in and one misses, we're a sinner. And when we sin, we have a big problem because Romans 6.23 goes on to tell us the wages, wages are what we earn. The wages of sin, it says, is death. We don't earn our way to God. We can't get to heaven by being good enough, by going to church, by putting money in the plate, by doing any of those things. What we earn by how we live our lives is death, eternal separation from God. Now, the good news of the gospel is that verse goes on to tell us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the, the gospel message. This is what Paul and Barnabas and others were preaching. We find it in the book of Titus. It tells us in Titus 3, 5 through 7. He, God, saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified, how? By his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's only through receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior that we're saved. This is the gospel of grace, and yet you see in Acts 15.1 and in Acts 15.5, the, the sect of the Pharisees were coming in, those that were called Judaizers, they were saying, well, it's, it's this plus this plus this. They were adding into the gospel. And what Paul and, and the rest of the writers of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, tell us is if you're trying to live according to the law, then you have to live according to the law 100% of the time. If I were to pull out a, a, a glass of water and it was nice and pure, in fact, you watched me crack the seal on you know, some bottle of water and I poured it in and it was this nice, cool drink. And I said, I said would you like a drink of water? And he said, yeah, I'm really thirsty. I said, oh, just a minute. I want to put something else in there. And I reach in my pocket and I pull out a vial with a skull and crossbones that says danger, deadly toxin. And I go, let me just put one little drop of that in there for you. 
And I drop that in the water, and I say, here you go, and you're going, oh, you know, I'm not so thirsty anymore, right? Why? It's, it's this nice, pure glass of water. I've just added one little drop of a deadly toxin to it. And you're going, Roger, you put a, one little drop in there, the whole thing's polluted, the whole thing is, is deadly. And you see, that's what the Bible tells us. When we try to live our lives and say, we're going to get to God by fulfilling the law like these Pharisees were doing, what God says is if you've dropped one little drop of sin, one little toxin in, the entire thing is polluted. It's null. It will, not, it, it, it will kill you. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, in John 19.30, it says as he was preparing to breathe his last, he said, it is finished. I've told you many times the Greek word used there is tetelestate. It literally means paid in full. It means to cancel and cover a debt and pay it off. Jesus didn't say as he died on the cross, down payment made, now you do the rest. And that's what the Pharisees were saying. They said, yes, you need faith in Christ, but now we need to add in these extra things for you to do to really be saved. And by doing that, what they were doing was taking away what, what Jesus Christ did. You see, what the Bible tells us is when we do that, we've negated the entire gospel. This is how Paul puts it in Philippians 3, 2 through 3. He says, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When you see that word false circumcision that I've highlighted there, uh, the word literally means to mutilate, to cut to pieces. Now, I'm sorry to be graphic here for a moment, but God is graphic because he wants us not to miss the point. You see, what Paul is saying is the, the Pharisees were saying, look, we just come in and we do one little tiny snip of skin. No big deal. And what Paul said is, well, when you come in and add that one little tiny drop to the whole message of the gospel of grace, you've actually castrated the child. He says, what you've done is taken a boy and you haven't made it a girl You've made it an it. He says, because if you're trying to do the law where you're fulfilling the requirements of the law and you're saying circumcision is that, he says, what you've done is you've, you've not made the boy a boy or even a girl. You've made it an it. The, the girl maybe would be grace and the law would be uh, circumcision. He says, you've, you've, it's, it's not by law or by grace. You're saved. You're trying to merge the two and what you've literally made it is nothing. And this is the whole point that Paul was saying. These guys were, were saying that this is what is needed to be saved, but he's saying that's not it. Remember Titus 3 that we just read? It says we're justified by God's grace, not by our deeds. If you want to go the law route, then you remove grace because you have to follow all of the law, which everybody fails at. Now, maybe you're sitting here saying, Roger, this is, this is nice that you're talking about Judaizers and circumcision and all, but that's a first century problem. You know, I live here in San Antonio in 2016, so what does this mean for me today? Is this really relevant? Why are we spending time even talking about it? And I don't know if any of you have ever had somebody knock on your door and say, hi, I'm a Judaizer, and I'm here to tell you that you must be circumcised to be saved. Has that ever happened to anybody? No, I have Mormons, I have Jehovah's Witnesses, I have other people knock on my door for all kinds of things, but I've never had a Judaizer show up and say, you must do this to be saved. But let me tell you why this discussion is relevant. 
because the same principle applies to things we do see in our day. Raise your hand if you've ever had somebody tell you you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Anybody ever heard that? Okay. Has anybody here ever been told you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved? Yeah, me too. Those are modern-day Judaizers. Those are individuals who, as well-meaning as they may be, what they're doing is they're adding into the gospel of grace. Now, this will open a can of worms, so nobody raise your hands, and please don't line up after the service. But lordship salvation is another form of this. And what lordship salvation is is the discussion about how sanctified do you have to look to really be saved. And so what we sometimes do is we're adding in the process of sanctification that comes after justification. We'll cover all that next week. Uh, and, and what we're doing is saying this is required here to be saved. And what God says to us is we need to stop this. You can look ahead to Acts 16.30. Uh, there the question is asked of Paul, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say believe and be baptized. If you were here when we looked at Acts chapter 2, the sermon on the day of Pentecost, we covered the issue of, is baptism necessary for you to be saved? We also talked about, uh, do you have to speak in tongues in order to show you're saved? And so if you missed the message, you can go back and listen to that online at waysidechapel.org. These are issues that are relevant to us today. These are the type of things that the, the Judaizers were doing. Later on in Acts 15.20, the council will give guidance on some of the things we need to change in the way the Gentiles are living. And we'll talk about that next week. So you can come back then. It's not to save them. Rather, it's because they're saved. And it's to help with the unity in the body. But what happens with us in our day is oftentimes we, we want to be well-meaning. We want to say, well, these are, these are things, you know, the, the Bible tells us God loves us just like we are. And, Roger, sometimes you say, and God loves us too much to leave us like we are. So I'm just trying to help people with that next step. But the problem is we're getting in the way of that first step. See, what the Bible says very clearly is salvation is by grace alone. Have you ever read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And this is what was going on and why Paul was, was so adamant about this issue being important. It tells us he and the others were coming out so strongly against it. Remember, this was an issue that caused the first church conference to be convened. The, they're up in Antioch. They travel 300 miles. Others are coming. The, the other apostles are there in Jerusalem. This is A.D. 49. And they're gathering together to say, we have a doctrinal issue that has to be discerned in the church going forward. Now, as they get together to meet, uh, what we find is God gives us a great model here for how we, we should operate as a church. Or in, you, know, you can take it out into other areas where you're saying, how do I deal with a conflict or an issue? In Acts 15.4, what we're told is there's an initial welcome of Paul and the others who are traveling with him. So the church in Antioch says, we're going to send Paul and Barnabas. We're going to send other witnesses along to make sure everything is, is covered the way it should be. They arrive in Jerusalem. There's this public welcome of all the delegates. And then they go into an executive session. Paul and the leaders meet. Now, if you read the book of Galatians, remember that Paul has just finished his missionary journey in the area of Galatia. And this is about the time frame where the book of Galatians gets written in the New Testament. 
And he gives us insight into Acts chapter 15, reporting how things were done. And what he says in Galatians 2, 2 is, as he meets with the leaders, it says, I did so in private to those who were of reputation. Imagine Wayside Chapel pulling together 3,000 people. If you get everybody together who is, is here on a regular basis, and we said, we're going to discuss an issue, and we want 3,000 people to weigh in on the discussion. How productive is that meeting going to be? So what happens is you have to start by framing the discussion. You have to define the issue, set the agenda. And then you do need to include uh, those who want to give input into the discussion. So that's what happens first. And after the leader set the agenda, you see there's a public meeting. This is where the Judaizers present their case. And then there are going to be the counterpoints that are presented, as you see in Acts 15, 6 through 7. It says the apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter after there had been much debate. Now, that word debate is a very strong word. Uh, the Greek word that's used here uh, can mean inquiry, debate, or questioning, but it's also used in, in, in translated in places as arguments and controversy. This, this wasn't a, a meeting where they all got together, held hands, and sung kumbaya. This was a toe-to-toe throwdown that was happening. The Judaizers were saying this. Paul and Barnabas were saying this. People were going back and forth and debating the issue. Now, you hear me tell you on a regular basis that when we disagree with somebody, uh, we don't need to be disagreeable, that we can disagree in a way and present our, our case in a, in, in a way that doesn't run somebody over. But there are also times that we need to know as believers that you give no ground. You don't say to somebody, well, we're going to agree to disagree on this. That's your opinion, and here's mine. Or you can have your truth, and I'm going to have my truth. You know how Paul describes the meeting that took place? He says in uh, Galatians 2.5, But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the, the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Do you see why Paul said this is worth fighting for? This is worth going to the mat? This is worth saying, no, you're wrong. I don't care how sincere you are, you're wrong. He said because it, it was the truth of the gospel. Now, I talk to people on a regular basis who say to me, you know, Roger, you're, you know, I, I understand you have your position and you're a pastor, so you think the Bible's right, but I read this book or I have a friend who this, and, and it, you know, isn't it arrogant to think your truth is, is over their truth or, you know, they're, they're just as sincere as you are about what you think the Bible says. Have you ever had those kind of discussions with somebody? And you know what's funny to me is how people, when it comes to the issue of Christianity, Often that is the only issue where they will say, look, there's no absolutes. You can't just be so narrow-minded that you say there's just one way to God. Uh, they say we should allow for all, all truths. And what I'll often say to somebody like that is I'll say, have you ever gotten a prescription? And you go to the counter at the pharmacy and you hand your prescription to the pharmacist. And he or she takes your prescription, they read it, and they say, oh, I see your doctor wants you to have XYZ medicine, and, you know, we've got that back here. But, you know, really everything back here is medicine, and so it really doesn't matter. I'm just going to pick something off the shelf and give it to you because, you know, all medicine is medicine, right? Do you want an open-minded pharmacist like that? I mean, is that acceptable to you? Or imagine you go to your bank, 
And, you know, you pull into the little drive-through, you send your thing through the tube, and there's that little screen, and the teller comes on, and here she says, oh, I've got your slip here. I see you want to deposit this, and you want this much money back, and that's great. But, you know, I'm, I'm a teller, and I work with numbers all day, and numbers are just numbers. I mean, two plus two doesn't have to equal four, or, you know, all the accounts are here are in the same bank, so it really doesn't matter which account I put your check in. Is that okay with you if I just deposited, you know, here? So, and, and, you know, you get your money back and you go, excuse me, pushing the call teller button, there, there, I'm, I'm missing $20. Oh, well, it's kind of close. I mean, it's, it's okay. It's, you know, is that okay with you? I mean, you, do you appreciate open-minded tellers like that who say, you know, you're, it doesn't, it's, we don't have to be exact. And you're thinking, no, I would never bank there. So friends, why is it when we deal with an issue that is so important, that has eternal significance, that we're willing to yield the ground to battle, so to speak, and say, well, you can believe the way you believe and I'll believe the way I do. The Bible says there is only one way home to heaven. Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we can say, well, I, I, I want to love the person. I don't want to upset them. I don't want them. Friends, I would rather they're angry at Roger the rest of their life and they spend their life in eternity with God then the reverse for me to say, well, I just don't want to upset you today, so I'm just going to walk on by and let you believe the way you want. Now, again, we do it in love. We don't come with a hammer and run them over. But there are times to do as Paul and Barnabas did and say, I'm going to yield no ground, not even for one hour, because this is the truth of the gospel. Now, as we look at what's happening, it's not just Paul and Barnabas. Look at what Peter says in verses 7 through 11. It tells us Peter stood up and he said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the same way as they also are. Now, what we have here is the Jerusalem Council, which I told you is taking place in 49 AD. When Peter says in the early days, he's looking back about 10 years to the time that we saw earlier in the book of Acts where Peter, you'll recall, had a vision where this sheet came down out of heaven and it had all this unclean food in it. And God said to Peter, go, he says, kill and eat. And Peter says, Lord, I'm an observant Jew. I've never eaten any unclean food. I followed the law. And, and God told him, look, Peter, what I've made clean is clean. There's, there's no distinction. And you'll recall that right after that is when this contingent from Cornelius, the Gentile, arrived and said, hey, God wants you to come and tell us the message of the gospel. Peter went to this Gentile's home where his family was and his friends were, and he said, hey, it's not lawful for me, a Jew, to be here with you Gentiles. And yet God has shown me there's no distinction. And he shared the good news of the gospel. They came to faith. And do you remember the co confirming sign what happened? The Holy Spirit came. 
Now, the Holy Spirit descended upon the Jews on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It showed that they were, they were saved. It happened again uh, to the Samaritans in Acts 8.17. And so what Peter is saying is, listen, we have seen how God has confirmed that the Gentiles are part of those who have come to true faith. And I love the word he uses. When he says God knows their heart, he uses his Greek word, kardionostes. And what it literally is translated as is heart knower. Isn't that a beautiful word? God knows our heart. Remember, the test of salvation is not a physical external circumcision. It's the internal circumcision of our heart. And what it says is God knows our heart. And do you know what God knows about our hearts? He knew that we were lost. He saw our hearts and they were blackened by sin. We, we had a, a fatal uh, disease that was going to cause the end of our life when it comes to eternity. We would be separated from God for all eternity. And it says that God seeing our heart didn't say, ooh, we've got to do something about that. You've got to get cleaned up and figure things out. And when you're almost you know, there, you can start coming to church. And then when you, we check off enough boxes, then you'll be good enough to get in. What Romans 5.8 tells us is God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He said, I see your heart. I see you're lost. I see you're hopeless. And he said, I'm going to fix the problem. The only way it can be fixed, which is through sending my son to come and pay that penalty of death that you owe for your sins. And when you come to faith, you are saved. There's a story told about a, a family that was tired of living in the city. They said, we've always dreamed of owning a ranch and raising cattle. And so the father and, and mother and two sons uh, bought this ranch. They move out to the country. And they're there. They fix the place up. They buy a bunch of cattle. Uh, they're getting the place established. And about six months later, a friend shows up uh, to visit, stays with them at the ranch, and is walking around and says, wow, this is, this is beautiful. He says, what do you call the ranch? And, and the father said, well, you know, I, I wanted to call it the Flying W. My, my wife wanted to call it the Susie Q. And my oldest son wanted to call it the Bar J. And the, the younger boy wanted it to be the Lazy Y. And he said, so what did you decide on? And, and the father said, well, we call it the Flying W, Susie Q, Bar J, Lazy Y Ranch. Friend goes, well, that's, that's kind of a mouthful, but it is a beautiful place. He said, but I've got a question. He says, where are the cattle? And the father said, yeah, you know, none of them survived the branding. <laughs> as, as we're looking at the passage here, what, what Peter says to us is, nobody's going to survive the branding. He, he says to the Pharisees, he says, listen. We couldn't keep the law. You guys didn't do it. Remember when Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees? He says, you guys can do it. Our, our ancestors can do it. So why are we going to require the Gentiles to do it? He says, when we do that, we're putting a yoke on them. We're weighing them down with a burden. And beyond that, he says, we're testing God. We're telling God, you don't know what you're doing. We have a better plan than you do. And that word of warning to those in that day stands for us in our day. I know there are many of us who are well-meaning. And what we say is, well, you know, um, 
I want this person to really be living for the Lord and doing the right things. And so, you know, when I talk to them about getting saved, I, I, you know, I tell them, you know, don't drink, don't dance, dress a certain way, don't do... And, you know, it's wonderful if we have all those convictions for ourselves. And we'll talk some more about Christian liberty next Sunday. But what I don't want us to do is to add that in because what we're doing is dropping poison in the water. And what we're doing is castrating instead of circumcising. And we are making the gospel something it is not. And God says you cannot do that. What we're talking about today is keeping the main thing the main thing. In verse 20, you're going to see instruction to the Gentiles about don't eat certain foods, don't do certain things. And we'll talk again next week about what all that means. But what he's saying right now is we're we're dealing with the issue of salvation by grace through faith alone. And and what Peter does is he finishes covering what he just did. Look at how the crowd responds. Verse 12 says, all the people kept silent. Remember, there was this contentious, fight, arguing, yelling, controversy, and suddenly everybody goes, whoa. That, That is what the Word of God says. And next, we see Barnabas and Paul get up. It says, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, it says, James answered and said, brethren, listen to me. Now, the James that is mentioned here is the half-brother of Jesus. You remember that uh, Jesus was uh, conceived through the Holy Spirit, a miraculous uh, birth that took place with God and, and a human mother, Mary. Now, Joseph, the stepfather, and Mary, the mother, had other children. And you'll remember that these other children, after the virgin birth, uh, didn't, didn't believe in Jesus. You read through the Gospels, and you see these brothers and sisters were saying, oh, yeah, you're God, Jesus. Go down to the temple, show yourself, do that God stuff. And they were mocking him. They didn't believe in him. But then they came to faith. Because after Jesus was crucified and died, the scriptures tell us he was resurrected and he appeared to witnesses. And one of those that is specifically mentioned is James. James, his brother, who didn't believe in him, did come to faith in Christ. And now James, we're reading, is a leader in the church in Jerusalem. This is the head guy. Peter, the apostle, is there. These other guys are there. But James is the leader in the church. And as James stands up to speak in this council assembly, the Judaizers who have been getting hit with one truth bomb after another are going, we're losing. And then James gets up and they go, okay, good. James is our champion. James is going to set things straight because uh, have you ever read the book of James, the epistle of James? If you were here last year, we, we preached through James. And, you know, James is a book that you can see the, the traditionist uh, leanings. The law is mentioned 10 times in the book of James. James says, faith without works is dead. And we covered what that means, showing we're not saved by our works. And so as James stands up to speak, they're all going, okay, James is one of us. He's like a Pharisee. He's a guy that says the law is important. You have to do things. In fact, they would have been really excited when he called Peter Simon. And the spelling, that you don't see this in our English text, but in the, in the Greek text, there's a very unique spelling. It's a very traditional form of, of Simon here. It's only found one other time in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. And so as James emphasizes the, the Hebrew background of Peter, as he stands up and speaks, the, 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 the Judaizers are going, bring it on. So let's see what he says in verses 14 through 18. 
He says, uh, Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his names. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And they go, oh, yeah, quote the Old Testament prophets. So he's bringing in Amos here is what, where this next quote comes from. And he says, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. You see, what, what he's doing here is he's quoting from Amos the prophet. And what Amos tells us is there is a time coming. One of the evidences of God's restoring work, he says, is he's going to take the tabernacle or tent of David. This is the nation of Israel that he's speaking of. That he says has fallen, has collapsed, and he's going to raise the tent. He's going to rebuild the nation. This is when Israel comes back into its glory. And he says one of the confirming evidences of God's work would be the explosion of faith among the Gentiles where the Gentiles would come to faith in the Messiah. And, and what they do is Peter says this, the Judaizers are going, go, go, go. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, no, 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 that's not right. Because what he does is he says, James calls these Gentiles a people for God's name. Now the Jews would have said, wait a minute, James, you just hijacked our title. As you read the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 14.2 and in 28.10, it talks about the Jews being God's people. And he says, what are you doing applying that name to the, the Gentiles? That's who we are. Now, let me, let me say this here clearly, because a mistake that is made sometimes is that people will say that the church has replaced Israel in the covenants. That's called replacement theology. And that is not what the Bible teaches. And that's not what we're reading here. You see, what he's saying is, and we're going to see in a moment as I unpack this passage a little further, is Israel has a very specific place and promises that will still be fulfilled in the end times. The Bible is very clear of that. But there is this new entity that is on the scene called the church. And the church is called a mystery in the scriptures. And it's something that people go, how, do, how does the church interact with Israel if you have believing Jews and believing Gentiles and, and Samaritans now in this entity called the church? Uh, there, there's a, a word called ekklesia. This is the Greek word. Maybe you've heard of ecclesiastical things. This is where it comes from. And this is the word that is translated church in the scriptures. That preposition ek, E-K, that you see at the beginning means out. And kaleo means to call. We've talked about parakaleo earlier. This is, this is a different preposition. So this literally means the called out ones. And what it speaks of is how we as Christians have been called out to the, form this new assembly called the church. And this is what he's talking about. And he says there are Jews and Gentiles that are in this. And he says, now listen, as he's talking about the, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, it's, it's not just Amos. He's, he's talking about what we find in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah uh, said God has a plan in the Old Testament. He's revealed. You can read Isaiah 2.2 and Isaiah 11.10. And he says there would be the salvation of the Gentiles as well as the future establishment of the glorious kingdom for Israel. And as you read through Isaiah, you can start in Isaiah chapter 11 through 12 and read chapter 35 and chapter 60, and you'll see this 
end times plan unfolding where the church and the Gentiles and the people, the Jews, how is all this interrelated? And, and what he says here is God has this plan. Paul, who's writing this, was also used to write the book of Ephesians. Read Ephesians 2 through 3. Read Romans 9 through 11, those chapters. And you'll see again where God interweaves and reveals how does this plan where the the church and Israel uh, are together, we as Gentiles have been grafted in, and yet how does Israel still have a place in God's program and what are the covenants that apply? Galatians 3.28 tells us we are one in Christ Jesus. As we talk about this, as I said, please hear clearly, the church has not replaced Israel. But there is this new entity that God is operating in a different way with. Now, James says this. He says, the prophets agree with this conclusion. And this is where he's quoting from Amos 9, 11 through 12 in this, what we just read, to prove his point. Now, I want you to look at what he says here very closely. Because you'll notice he doesn't say that what Peter and Paul and Barnabas have said was a fulfillment of Amos prophecy. Is that how your Bibles read? No. What does it say? Rather, he says what Amos wrote agrees with her testimony. If you go back and carefully read Amos 9, 8 through 15, what you'll see is he's describing the end time events where God is going to regather his people Israel together and he will bless them. Amos also prophesies that the fallen house or tent of David would be raised up and God would fulfill his covenant with David where a king would sit on his throne. Who is the king that sits on the future Davidic throne? Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all of the prophecies. And what the Judaizers are doing is they're saying, well, wait a minute. By, by raising up the Gentiles and making them a part of Israel, what you've done is taken away from the glory of Israel. Friends, if I take a candle, my candle that's lit, and I take one that's not lit, and I light another candle, and my light is still burning, have I negated my light? No. All I've done is add to it. And what the Judaizers were saying is only Israel can have this particular place, so you Gentiles have to become proselytes, become part of us. And what he was saying is there, are, there is this dual fulfillment that is taking place. Now, I know a few sentences back, several eyes glazed over people. I, I can't follow you, Roger. It's like when you throw the chart up and start going, oh, here's this and this and this. Uh, so let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf for you. Can I do that? <laughs> and you're saying, please do. If all of this is overwhelming, this is what I want you to walk away with. God has had a plan from the very beginning of time. And nothing is a surprise to him. The cross did not surprise God. The church was not plan B. Read the book of Genesis. Have you ever read where it talks about uh, the serpent coming in and striking the heel and he's going to crush the head of the serpent? You know what that's talking about? All the way back to the fall. Satan the serpent said, I'm going to kill the Messiah. I'm going to win. And it looked like he did at the cross, didn't it? Because Jesus was crucified. Everybody said, we thought he was the one. He's dead in a tomb. What happened? Well, what happened is three days later, he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. Satan bruised the heel of the Son of God, but the Son of God crushed him and conquered sin and death once and for all. That didn't surprise God. 
That was part of the plan. When the church came along, God didn't go, oh, I had chosen the people of Israel and they were supposed to accept my son as the Messiah. And when they rejected him, I went, oh, holy vey, what am I going to do? I got I to gotta come up with a new plan. And he creates this thing called the church. And we're going to, that, that didn't surprise God. That was all part of the plan all the way along. God has had a plan and the plan is being worked to perfection. Everything God prophesied has been and will be fulfilled. And that is what we're reading here. What James is telling the Judaizers is God is still going to fulfill the plan. And and bringing the Gentiles and making them look like us as Jews and becoming proselytes is not part of the plan. Do you remember Genesis 15, 6? Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness before circumcision ever existed. And what Peter ends by saying here in verses 19 through 21 is, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled and from blood. And you're going, okay, Roger, we were just talking about how salvation is by grace alone in the gospel and works don't do anything for us, but now we're seeing some kind of requirements of how to live. What's all that mean? Well, come back next week. Because we're going to talk about why that is there. But as we end today, this is what I want to end with. And I want you to consider this question. Where are you in terms of understanding the gospel of grace? What have you done with God's message of salvation? With God's message of grace alone? Through faith alone? I want to illustrate it this way. Some of you are going to wish you sat on the front row now. This isn't the church's money, it's my money. So I have a dollar here and I want to give it to you. Have you done anything to earn this dollar? No. Do you want this dollar? Sure. How does it become yours? Well, I'm giving it to you, but how does it become yours? Well, show me. Now, whose dollar is it? It's mine. No, it's yours because I offered it, you took it. Now, Isabel's sitting next to you with her hand like this too, so. <laughs> do you want a dollar? Yes. Yes. How, how, how do you get this dollar? I take it. Well, don't tell me. Do it. <laughs> now, unlike God who has infinite resources, <laughs> I don't. They all go, oh, one more, one more. That's the gospel of grace. These great young ladies did nothing to earn it. They didn't merit it. Some of you are going, that's not fair. Grace is that I gave it to even one. Neither one of them deserved it. Neither one of them earned it. The fact that I gave even one person one dollar was grace. And that's what the Bible tells us. God has a gift of salvation that he offers. And he says, it's here. I died on the cross. I paid the penalty of sin. And for you to receive it, it's a legitimate offer. He says, all you have to do is reach out and take it. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. God offers the gift of new and eternal life to all of us here today. 
The question is, have you ever received it? Or are you still trying to live according to the law? Are you still saying, if I go to church and put money in the plate and work hard enough and am good enough, that then I can get to God? God says, you can't do it that way. There's only one way. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. If you're here today and you've never received God's great gift of new life, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But what you do have to do is say to God, God, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I've made mistakes in my life that, you know, I've messed up at times. I've lied. I've stolen. I've cheated. I've done whatever your list of sins is. That means you owe a penalty of death. And you recognize today you have to turn from that uh, sin that you've committed, those sins you've committed, and turn to the Son of God who paid the penalty in full to give you the gift of new life. If you'd like to do that, I want you just to bow your heads where you are. And I want you to pray this prayer with me. Lord God, I'm a sinner. I recognize that I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. God, I thank you that you loved me enough that you left heaven to come to earth. As you say in Romans 5, 8, you demonstrated your love for me and that while I was yet a sinner, you, Jesus Christ, died for me. Jesus, today I'm turning from my sin and to you to be my Savior. I accept your gift of eternal life that you paid for when you gave your life on the cross for me. I thank you, Jesus, that you said, it is finished, paid in full, not down payment made, and I have to do the rest. God, I thank you for the gift of new life I now have. And as one who belongs to you, would you help me to live a life that honors you? Thank you, God, for making me a son or a daughter of yours today. I pray this in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be up here at the front as well prayer leaders after this closing song. We want you to come and talk to us so we can make sure you understand that step of faith and then help you to begin to grow in your new life in Christ. Will you stand now as we sing this closing song of worship?